Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, Wade and I are joined with Dr. Jeremy, Jeremy Zima from uh, Wisconsin I'm Lutheran College. Jeremy. And uh, he has uh, been gracious to come in a time when he's not teaching, um, to come in and talk music with us. And so um, we're going to... We're going to talk uh, for a free-for-all, what are the kids these days listening uh, to? And then for our main topic, well, you explain the main topic and put your microphone just a little bit closer and then tell us about what main topic uh, you wanted because it was kind of your idea. Yeah, it is kind of my idea, but I thought that you guys would have uh, some interesting things to say about it as well. And it, it does kind of uh, it, it does kind of spin off of the, the free-for-all. Um, I'd kind of like to talk about um, the changes in uh, technology in in popular music uh, production and consumption and how that affects listening patterns. Again, what the kids are listening to, how they're listening to it, uh, issues like um, uh, censorship, lyrical content, stuff like that. How does a, how should a Christian think about this stuff? I, I teach, um, oh, 60 kids a semester in uh, a survey of American popular music and this stuff kind of stuff comes up all the time. Um, you know, uh, you know, how does, how does YouTube, how does Spotify play a role? Um, how do, how do musicians make money in the new economy? You know, we're, we're, uh, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And um, 25 years ago, um, a lot of artists would have been just fine because people would be actually running out to buy their albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't anymore. And so where does that, where does that leave us? So I, I kind of just want to talk about technology, the way that, the, the way that we can, how, how differently we consume music than we used to and what that, what that means. Um, and you know, I'm just thinking about it even as, a, as both a professor and a, and a parent, the fact that it's, it, you can get your hands on music so much more easily mm-hmm. than you used to be able to. There's very much less control uh, than there used to be. And uh, I'm not, not here to make a get-off-my-lawn argument, but I do kind of want to like tease through some of those things. Sure. I think it's interesting. Excellent. So we, and, and what you had said was both coming from a uh, professor of music sort of place, but also as a parent and a consumer here. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then how does that work out in our economic times and our political times too i would i would imagine so excellent that will be our main topic uh wade would you like to say anything at this juncture or I have any a, complaints or I anything that you complaints. have complaints first right. off uh <clears throat> mike went in my office when i was going to get my mail and turned my computer off i think mm-hmm. fake news fake and news. uh so that was unfortunate he claims he didn't do it i also so i, I misread this email you sent about what we're doing today so mm-hmm. i apologize to uh to jeremy and that but not to michael because i scrolled down and I see uh, you wrote, hi, sorry Wade was not able to connect with you about recording last semester. Right, which was... That's, that's, that's exactly true. how it happened. So why would you put that? I'm just saying sorry about that, Yep. and let's redo it. So why'd you put it on me? On behalf, because... Because I asked you to do it, that is and true. you said, I will do it, and but then if you didn't, didn't do it. Do if it. something doesn't happen, I don't say, Mike did this. <laughs> so... If we're supposed to be working as a team, it should be sorry that we were not able. That's right. Um, when so, you don't do something, I don't blame you. <laughs> well, that, um, that's the exact opposite of the truth. Yeah. All right. So anyway, um, we're just going to let that go. We are. And we do apologize for the ice in the in the ice that is going to be making noise oh. here because Wade purposely just tries to troll. I'm not even purposely trying to troll. Troll even teenage girls I'm a who hydro have to homie. edit here. Yes. So don't worry, uh, it's not a cocktail. It's just ice water. That's right. Um, and water would have been fine without the ice, but yep. such is life. You know the problem right. without, with water without ice, Michael. Okay. It's not cold. That's right. But uh, you'll survive. You forgot stuff. You forgot disclaimer. You forgot to mention the network. I know. I kind of just want to move on. We're part of the 1517 Podcasting Network, which we're very happy to be a part of. They are at like 12, 13, 14 podcasts now. You can get them by going to 1517.org. Michael um, will have a book coming out uh, soon. encourage you to check that out on vocation. I'm sure he'll take full credit for his book. Um, just as he assigns full credit to me if I fail to make contact with someone <laughs> when I have been told By the to, way, uh, I have a, so. I have the little video trailer that they fin- they finalized that too. Oh, so they you added shared it with me. It. And you know what I, I did? You said, wait, please don't share this. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, and I didn't oh, hear thank any. thank you. You mentioned any of my positives to anybody <laughs> about stuff like that that I do as a good friend. I will send you the, they added some, they added uh, like another track of sound, like when they had the. So the video is about vocations. So they have different uh, people fulfilling their vocations, and they added like the sound of the like the uh, 
cook chopping stuff nice. and whatever. There's a lot of faces really, I recognize in that video. There's some high quality stuff. I'm the I, Clambaras were doing some wonderful, parenting wonderful parenting in that in, in that, that video. And I was I, you wore your outfit well. I think you kind of <laughs> did what I was getting at, and uh, so uh, I was happy. I should have had a band T-shirt. My last will complaint, you Michael, if I asked you if I asked you when it does come out to share it on the podcast Facebook page, would you be willing to do that? Yeah, I will. You hold it over. Who does all the social network you stuff do. for us? You do. Who produces yeah. all the winging? It's Michael. Um, you do. Who gets everything up on the website and into iTunes? You do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But that doesn't get pointed out. <laughs> Just that I didn't make contact. The last complaint was I walk in, and uh, Mike is doing something that uh, is one of the, to me, one of the most upsetting things someone can do. <laughs> Mike is bashing '90s music. <laughs> I wasn't bashing. I was having an intelligent conversation with a music professor. Mike deep professor down here. wishes he were a boomer. It's just in his bones. For for two reasons. Trying to say 60s music was better. I would say, like, if you're going to take, like, okay, give me the top 10 guitarist, how many are coming from the 60s or 70s, and how many are coming from the 90s, I think legitimately we would say that's the argument you know I'm trying to make. You know people from the 60s were doing stuff in the 90s. I'm saying, you know what I mean, that genre mm-hmm. that was that began there rather than sort of more the, the grunge kind of stuff. I like both. I'm just saying that um, at that specific moment, there was... Um, how, f- was how was... See, you're also, I think, being very uh, limited in your cultural perspective. Uh, what about 60s hip-hop? Was, it, was that a good time for hip-hop? <laughs> I think, well, that's what I would say. Hip-hop would be better because um, it didn't exist, first of all. But second of yeah. all, that was a different time in our culture. And so what I'm saying is rock and roll probably had a better, just like jazz has its era and rock and roll has its era. That's the only argument I was making. And it really was an argument. It was a question. Well, you were making assertions. It was a question. He said objectively. It was did a he, question. Jeremy did not yeah, say objectively, objectively several times. Certain, yeah. Objectively. That Dr. Zimmel was trying to be very professional and was saying aesthetics. <laughs> it's a question of aesthetics. And Mike kept saying objectively like he was talking about mathematics or something. I think that beauty is objective. Well, then we have to admit that um, actually in terms of objective uh, standards of uh, musical beauty, um, Smells Like Teen Spirit is an excellent pop song. Right. One of the best. Yeah. I'm not a fan. What, it, what, what was the equivalent in the 60s of? Uh, you want to know? The main riff of Smells Like Teen Spirit is actually sort of a, a, a twisted and darkened what, version of uh, Louie Louie. <laughs> yeah, I was going to. I actually, I had a guess on that. Yeah. The, uh, all right. Well, this show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right. A podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. back for our free-for-all and so uh i i'm interested in this free-for-all topic um, excuse me Mike. just if anybody's wondering i'm taking a drink of water okay it does sound wow <sighs> that last part like the first part sounds classy but that last part when it comes down like that's classy but then when it comes down it like oh that's just a water bottle we kind of sound like the thinking fellow sometimes right that's what i'm saying the back first in the part, day when they were in the garage when they were really enjoying yeah. you know yeah. life out yeah. in the garage they you'd hear Right, that's good. But then, like, you also hear like you also hear those those zippos going too. You hear them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's what, almost gone. So it's almost over. My what head. are the kids listening to these days? Um, I've been when we do introductions in class. Sometimes I'll ask different questions to different uh, yeah. kids. Like you know, like if you could go anywhere in the world, where it would be? And what are you like binging on Netflix or what are you listening to right now? And and they so have they trouble. They have trouble um, answering the music question. Yeah, that it's actually a fascinating one for me because I do ask that question, and uh, in, in my intro to uh, American Popular Music class, I, I, I ask them all during the 
you know, what their favorite genre is, if they have a favorite artist. And you can kind of tell what they've heard and what they've not heard as you progress through the class. And a lot of times I'm very surprised on what they know. But on the other side, like what they have no knowledge of that I would have expected them to. So when I survey the class, um, it sort of depends. Um, but I would say a lot of the guys especially are really into classic rock. And by that, I'm shocked because um, they're still listening to the music that my parents uh, grew up with. So we're talking mm-hmm. 70s and, and 80s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Aerosmith, Journey, um, Ario Speedwagon, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of that. Uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of people that are into country music, but I would say they're not necessarily into the very newest country music. I have my I have my thoughts on why that is, um, but they're very much into sort of like country music that's between 10 and 20 years old. So there's a real kind of nostalgic vibe. Obviously, there are kid there are kids um, and students, you know, that that are going to be into you know. Uh, alternative music. There's a lot of kids that are into hip hop. A lot of them are really into class. I had a kid this last semester who I think deep down thinks he's Eminem. <laughs> um, um, he, I mean, we had a lot of great discussions about Eminem and hip hop. He kind of looked like him. Um, but this is the sort of thing that happens at a, you know, at a, at a school like WLC. He, he, he's got all this sort of talk about hip hop and who's a great rapper and who's trash and all this sort of thing. And in the fall when he came in, he's on a football team, and so he's growing a mullet with all of his football buddies and looking hard in class. And he came back in, like, the third week of school. He sits right in front. I said, hey, man, what happened to your hair? Because he had a buzz cut. He said, oh, um, I went home and visited my grandma, and she told me to cut that off <laughs> now. He's like, so I did. <laughs> I was like, all right. It's super hard, man. <laughs> Not eight miles. So this part of the reason why I'm asking this is – um, there's always like you can hear what's on the radio or you can see what's on the charts or you can see what's mm-hmm. downloaded or whatever, but there's always and forever will be something that's a little bit underground, something that's alternative, something that's that uh, the, the, that not everybody is listening to, but is something that is, pre- I'm thinking like uh, even early back or, you know, some of that stuff that mm-hmm. took a while to get become popular. Mumford and um, Sons. So what, At what first, what, big what, and ruined it. what is, uh, something that's not big right now that some of your, uh, more astute students are listening to? A lot of them are really into what we would call alternate hip hop. And I can't pretend to know a lot, a lot about mm-hmm. this, but, um, but you know, they'll, you ask them about kind of more mainstream rappers and they'll say, no, it's not, you know, you know, Kanye's done, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know. Uh, Eminem's passe or whatever, and and they're really into um, you know more underground versions of uh, of hip hop. They're into these kind of like uh, rap battles, and uh, uh, you know that that I've seen that I've seen a lot of um, some that are a little bit more uh, I guess maybe if they had a lot of like music lessons. There's an artist uh, right now who's kind of blowing up. He actually was um, nominated for a Grammy, but in the most you wouldn't you wouldn't expect him to be as popular as his name's uh, Jacob Collier. He's a British guy. He's in his early 20s. He's a, um, he's a musical savant is what he is, but he's also a huge YouTube star. So basically, um, he has perfect pitch. He can play every instrument. He's a virtuoso singer, and, and he puts all of his music together himself in his bedroom, okay? And he films it all for YouTube, and it turns out it's really good. He's, 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 uh, he's influenced by um, you know, Stevie Wonder and, and you know, some, some hip-hop and R&B artists and, of course, you know, rock and jazz. And it's just like this weird stew that's totally him, very idiosyncratic. Um, but he's really getting a great, a great response from students. You know? I think part of the reason it's hard to pin down what they're listening to is because um, of the sort of endless availability and the ability to shuffle. Mm-hmm. So these these kids they, they don't think about it in terms of like what CD am I going to listen to or, or al- what album, album yeah. you know or necessarily even what station they find that too limiting. So what they have is they have a certain playlist that's um, maybe set for a kind of mood, mm-hmm. right, or a decade, and it's gonna it's gonna grab from all over, and that's usually how they actually discover music. I found is is they'll have on their um, Spotify study playlist and and a tune by an artist they've never heard of shows up, and now it's sort of the new obsession for a little bit very eclectic do they buy do they will they buy tracks or do they just kind of have a subscription to whatever depends on the students but most of them i don't think really buy music i I think it's mostly they stream it Mm -hmm. um they tolerate the commercials or find their way around it um but in terms of because they don't have to 
you don't have to own it anymore. You don't even have to have it on a, you know, on an iPod mm-hmm. anymore. Of course, those don't exist independently sure. of the iPhone anymore. So you right. don't have to have a physical space to store it. So why would they? Um, so yeah, it's ve- it's it's very collect because that's what you see. they have a hard time answering the music question in part because they don't know what they're listening to yeah. because they don't see themselves that way as a like you would have. I, even in even in the '90s, early 2000s, as I'm a rock guy, sure. You know, I like country music, or like everyone always used to say to me when I was growing up, I like every kind of music except for country, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is. So that's there's a there's a real openness and eclecticism that's even confusing for them. It's always on in the background. Sure. Uh, the goal of a class like mine is to try to get them to actually listen to it. But um, so my my sixth grader will listen I, to Green like Day. I, I, I'd like to. Um, I was actually watching a documentary the other day, and they had an interesting thing about it. You guys, they found out more about why the the Beatles broke up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys ever read this, but apparently um, John was sending a letter to someone, and they were behind on producing stuff, and he blamed Paul <laughs> rather than just saying, we as the Beatles are behind on stuff. And um, it was really interesting that really led to the downfall of their ability to work together anymore. Which is which is uh, strange because most people would think it was Yoko. Yeah, yeah she gets but blamed. she's not. It's chauvinism. It's one of, one of those anti-woman, right. misogynistic media things. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I thought of that. Yeah. I just, it just came to mind. But yeah. go ahead with your, uh, um, with your question, Mike. Yeah, John was... Uh, g- Ten, some of them tend to be really oversensitive. The Beatles, yes. yeah. Um, so I was, egos in play. Yes. that often comes with uh, with great creativity. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, like my daughter, she's got three posters. She has TLC, Elvis, and the Beatles. She's yeah. in sixth grade, right? And right. then she likes Green Day. So, wait, who's got wh- the best song out of those three? Boy, that's a tough one. I think TLC waterfalls. They may be the, the if best. If I'm gonna be singing. honest, yeah. that <laughs> one jam. sticks in your head. Jam. You know, it's very inspiring. Probably, the, I think the the Beatles are probably like, you know, like hit after hit after hit after hit. But yeah. you know, if I would say the best of Elvis, I take the best of Elvis maybe over the best of the Beatles. I I'm not the world's biggest Beatle fan, but I would disagree with you on that. I just I I, I just think there's there's such a uh, such a a, a deep uh, creativity and adventurousness in the in the Beatles, and that they never sort of did the same thing twice. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're deep. Yeah, I'm just saying maybe like if you took the top five Elvis and the top five Beatles, but at the same time, did Elvis? I don't know. Maybe he did. But did Elvis write all his own no, stuff? No, he wrote none of his own stuff. <laughs> yeah, really? so I think that has there to count go. too. I did not know that. Elvis right. Elvis's career was modeled on Frank Sinatra's career. So, so that's the model, um, was to sort of be a, a, a teeny bopper, uh, you know, a youth star, and then mature into someone who appear. Who I'm just looking to at Mike a, being wrong right a now. Broad, really a broad good. audience. And, that, and Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, like, you'll note that, that Elvis got away from doing country and rock and roll very, very sh- shortly after that initial hit in like 54 through like 57. When he comes out of the army, he's doing much more American songbook kind of stuff, gospel songs, things like that. Um, Which pretty much I would say everyone knows. I mean, it's pretty much fair to say, right? That. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you think like, who would be the most talented though? Like, would you put Prince up there? Like, well, well, yeah, we, we I, had three. You can't just, I mean, Prince is, Prince is interesting because again, like he's sort of like, he's one of these I'll guys stop. that, um, that, uh, plays all his own instruments, writes all his own right. songs, has like that that deep control over his own musical vision. I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, the man refused to use his own, Prince is his real name, like refused to use his Wait, own. Wait, that is his real name? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, refused to use his own name because he got into a spat with Warner Brothers over um, who had control of his music and who could release it when. Um, and so they said, well, we own your master tapes. And he said, oh, you do? And they said, yeah. He said, "Well, then I'm not Prince anymore, and good luck. You can't, you can't, you can't make money off of a guy that no longer exists." And then he became the artist, right? right. And re- and and went a different direction. Was more than happy to sit home. In fact, when he died, they went into Paisley Park Studios. He was notoriously like quiet about this. There's there's enough finished music in his vault, not demos, not like ideas. Finished, fully produced music to release a Prince album every six months for like decades. I mean. There's thousands of hours of stuff. And he did a Batman soundtrack that was pretty good. Did he? Yeah. I remember back in the day, I had that uh, cassette tape. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Prince is one of those guys that had sort of an excess of creativity because he would write for himself, but then he also wrote a lot of hits for other people. So he was so prolific as a songwriter that he wrote kind of like how he wanted to, whatever his vision was for 
you know, where he was in his career, you know, whatever direction he wanted to go. But then he'd also see an artist that kind of inspired him and say, oh, I know what kind of a song I should write that would be perfect for, um, do you remember Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You? Yep. Prince, you wrote that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, an excess of creativity, but um, not, all, not quite the crossover appeal, of course, of someone like, of someone like uh, Elvis a little later in his career or Frank Sinatra sure. or even Paul McCartney. But even, but think of like the, one of the Beatles' biggest hits is if, you're, if, you're, if you want to talk about like top five, top ten Beatles songs. Of course, Yesterday, right? Song Yesterday. It's the most covered song in music history. Um, that's, a, that's modeled on an old, that's an old Tin Pan Alley song kind of like form, structure, lyrical content, right? Um, I, could, I could give you like, um, what would be a good example? Oh, um, like Al Jolson doing like April showers or something like that, right? They're fundamentally the same. Like if you look at their construction, like yesterday and like a, like an old sappy sentimental love song, right? So Paul McCartney is obviously drawing on that's a McCartney song is is drawing on on the, on that inspiration too and that claim to universality, right? So even as John Lennon is out there saying the Beatles are bigger than Jesus and you know their long hair is is hacking off every every sort of parent in mm-hmm. in the Midwest. There's also the part of them that they have something for everybody because when you come along, how can you object to yesterday? And it's sort of anodyne message and it's, tune, it's tunefulness. I mean, grandma understands that music because in its DNA, it's the exact same as the, as the kind of Tin Pan Alley uh, jazz-inspired music she grew up with. Very good. I, I feel like, Mike, I want to apologize. What? You seem to be annoyed. And I got us off topic. What? What Abby you- has those three posters. What was the point you were trying to make? No, that's right. That but so, well, it's, Sophia, so, it's so nostalgic, the though. Yeah. It's, it's, right. it, the point that you were originally making that, that... It's eclectic and it's right. nostalgic. It's and weird. it's of the, of the previous generation. Yeah, and I think that's because... But she likes Green Day, too. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which, which, I mean, Basket Case is 1994. Yeah, thereabouts. So, again, you know, like, what are your kids listening to, Wade? You've got teenagers. You've got a... Yeah, I don't talk to college. them much. Oh, okay. I would, I would, or do I, they uh, not talk to you? Ziggy doesn't really listen to music. Um... And I think Nicholas the, has got to be hip hop. Nick and Maggie both. Um, if I get in the car after them, are uh, yeah, they, they, uh, <laughs> they think they're a little more gangster than, <laughs> than we are at Fifty Seventh in Oklahoma. Their four focuses. The, uh, yeah, you know what poster I had in my room? What musical poster when I was mm. growing up? Paula Abdul. Because <laughs> opposites attract. <laughs> there you go. And I'm man enough to admit that. Hey man, that's great. What did I what did I have? I was I was a music nerd, so I had um I had Johnny Cash uh flipping off the Grand Old Opry and John Coltrane and then a bunch of guitar heroes like Eddie Van Halen and there stuff like that. So yeah, I, I wonder I wonder what's up with the nostalgia though. It's such a hard question to ask what they're listening to because they just they don't see it in terms of like old and new music the way that the way that like boomers, you know, in growing up in the sixties and seventies self consciously rejected the music of their right. parents. And many other things, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and all those values. It's like generationally, you sort of like yeah. have to just consciously reject what, whatever your parents loved. And there's something, there's something about the kids that are, you know, 25 and younger. They don't necessarily see it that way. Well, and I wonder part of it, too, is we get sick of labeling every generation. But also, in the 20th century, there was distinctive marks between every, genera- every decade. Yeah. You know, the 20s and 30s. I mean, there was events that made that decade. And I'm not sure that's so much true for the last 20. Yeah, well, and it's hard to know without the, well, we're living through one of right. those defining events right now, a couple of them, really. But um, that's probably true, and I think also it might have to do with the philosophical shift from, from sort of a, a modernism to a soft postmodernism. Sure. You know, I mean, if you think about, you know, aesthetically, you know, modernism really does rule the roost for much, much of the 20th century, and that's, we're always progressing towards something Anti-history, better. Anti-history, where, yeah, history now is maybe a little bit more, yeah. Maybe less production and more meaningful lyrics, too. I mean, that looks like a... I think authentic, holistic, those kinds of words. I mean, just a different vibe or feel to it from so much that comes out now that is very clean and smooth and repetitive. But well, that's true. That's true, and I'd love to talk about that when we get into the main topic. Is the way that music is produced? I think has a huge has a huge impact on that too. And I I wonder if one of the reasons a lot of uh, a lot of young people don't still love the old stuff is because it has a certain authenticity to it, just because of the way it's produced. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, so, it's kind of like the people getting back into vinyl even. I mean, there's a, a feel. Oh, I, I, took a, I took a doctoral seminar with a guy who did a Ph.D., uh, uh, media studies Ph.D. In, in just this topic. So I, if you want to talk about vinyl fetishization, even um, like uh, cassette tape. It uh, makes it sound nostalgia. dirty when you say it like that. <laughs> 
No, I mean it in the uh, I mean it in the philosophical sense. Yeah, of, I know, but it just still sounds a little. You thought it sounded dirty when you said it, didn't you? I didn't, but I knew what you thought. So one time you heard it. So one so one, so one time we were having this discussion in in PhD in a in a seminar, and I I very ser- I was talking about I, I said the word intercourse, and I literally meant it as like dialogue between two parties. Mm-hmm. And now I was young. I was twenty four. And one of the youngest people in my seminar, the teacher was in his 60s, a very the smartest guy I've ever met. And uh, I said it, and I didn't mean it to be like weird at all. It was just like the word for the moment. And all, every, all the other, you know, late 20, early 30 somethings in the class just looked at me like he just said that. And then they started laughing, and the prof was like, What are you laughing at? It's the right word. He didn't mean anything by it. I'm like, Thank you. Well, I apologize for having well, journey. Well, good. Um, we're probably getting sort of into yeah. our main topic, so we'll take a break and then we'll come back for our main topic. back for our main topic so uh jeremy why don't you just take it take it where you want to go yeah i'm i'm kind of fascinated lately by the way that my students come by their music how they how they consume it how they how they think about it in relationship to their life how they think about issues that were really big cultural issues for me growing up like lyrical content uh, stuff like that, you know, how, how artists presented themselves in public, you know, uh, whether that caused a certain amount of outcry or there was censorship or, or whether they, you know, uh, those things are just really, really interesting to me. I've, I've noticed that the kids, they are not outraged by much. In fact, I would say um, I'm probably more embarrassed when I start to teach anything that happens after the MTV, gen- like once MTV, once music becomes very visual with MTV, I probably get, I probably turn red in class more than they do. And it, that's, I think that's kind of part and parcel of the way that they are uh, raised and the way that they consume music and, um, and the way that music is produced and for what ends. And so I'm, I'm just kind of interested to kind of tease that out. I mean, I do teach a class on American popular music and the history of it at a, at a Lutheran Christian college. And, um, and so that's, that's always kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing too, because I don't, I don't like, I don't want to shy away from any of the, uh, you know, the hot, hot button kind of cultural issues that, that pop music presents. And by the way, um, is designed to press on these days. Right? That's a big change. Um, but it's designed to sort of like get after directly. And, you know, I don't want to shy away from it. But at the same time, I don't want to be, you know, gratuitous, you know. Uh, so, and I think a lot of the, you know, our students' views on, uh, and the younger generation's views on the music that they consume and stuff like that has to do with the way that it's, the way that it's produced and the way that they're getting access to it unfettered. And it's a big change in the last 20 years. It's completely different. So talk about that change. That's kind of, so you're right. So the record industry blew up with the invention of iTunes. So the entire recording industry model, as we knew it from, uh, and for, I'm, sorry, Robert, yeah. I'm trying to remember iTunes. Cause my mind's going to Napster, right? Which was a big hit for them. Was iTunes coming out as Napster was happening or iTunes kind of came out of the ashes of Napster. So both hand. So, um, so right. So the way that the record industry worked post World War II for sure, but even before that, right, is that is that an artist would go into the studio, they'd spend a whole bunch of money to create and package and market and a single or an album, but then the the control of its distribution was very was 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 very kind of like tight. The record company just you know, you had to go to a store to get it or get it by mail and so you know, you had physical copies, they had to be shipped. Um and there's a lot of money to be made in that physical artifact. You know, even as late as see, 2001, I wrote and produced a uh, you know, CD with the band that I was in, and it cost us three dollars uh, a CD and the professional jacket and jewel cover and everything like that. Um, cost us three dollars to make, sell them for ten bucks, seven bucks profit in there, right? And so you need to go to Target, you know, and sell a CD for fifteen bucks. You know, the costs are even lower to produce. Anyway, there's a lot of money in that, uh, but it's all very tightly controlled, and it's all it's. It's, it's, it's a process. Well, so in the late 90s, yeah, Napster was one of, those, uh, one of those first canaries in the coal mine that things were going to get very, very different very soon. 
And so uh, for those of you that don't know what Napster was, um, it was a peer-to-peer file sharing kind of service that allowed you not just music, but that you could basically, they didn't store anything. All Napster did was provide what we would maybe call a program or an app today is what we would probably call it that allowed my computer to talk to your computer. So if I had a shared folder on my computer, I could use Napster to then connect my computer to your computer shared folder. We could see what each other had and then, and then download each other's stuff. And, and if, if I'm, if I'm just, and this is just my own memory is I, you know, knowing friends who are talking about stuff or using stuff, I w- sadly uh, was, I thought the computers in, in a, Internet were going to kind of be a passing fad. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a while before I was, you know, um, cognizant. Of you and I that, probably missed snaps. We didn't, you know, we heard right, about it. Right, but I knew of people using it. But we didn't have to. And that's where, I, you know, part of what I'm wondering was, is that kind of the beginning of a, the shift to digital content yes. is people start realizing they can pirate this stuff or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Yep. And that kind of brings corporate America to realize, you know, we can. Yeah, so the story the story of this is pretty, is pretty fascinating. So think about it. Like, think about even back in high school for you guys, maybe you made a mixtape, right? Like, of tunes that you wanted to exercise to, or maybe you had a girl you liked and you want to make her a mixtape, right? Um, when Nicholas was little, he wanted to make a mixtape. We got called to his school because he and his buddy were having rap battles. And uh, his buddy was DJ Zilla. And you want to know what Nick made his rap name? Have I told you this before? <laughs> C-Rap. <laughs> Uh, so we had to tell him he couldn't call himself that at school anymore. <laughs> anyway. But he never actually got in the studio, although I think he would have had a So, but, you know, like, let's just say that you wanted to put together a tape that had all your favorite tunes on it from different artists, right? That's fairly labor-intensive because, because, I mean, even once you had a computer with, say, a CD drive, you had to upload that to your computer and then drag the files over and you want to make... So someone had to buy the CD at Walmart or at Target... Right, and then it's a really laborious process for them to dub it for their friends, and kind of expensive because you got to buy the hardware. You know what I mean? It's just a problem. Well, yeah, with Napster, now there's no more physical copy. Right, it goes from computer to computer, and I can, as soon as I can upload it to my folder. Now, literally millions of people can get at it through this program, and um, um, Steve Jobs and the people at Apple kind of came to the around this time came to the record companies and said, "Hey, there's this thing that's happening. You know, um, music's." going to go totally digital, you should probably get in on the ground floor of this and find a way to make people actually pay, put it behind a paywall because people want to consume music this way. They are sick and tired of paying $20 for a CD that has one song on it that they like. Um, they're, they're tired of the swindle. Um, listen, CDs were 20 bucks in 1985. They were still $20 um, in 1999. When does technology not come down in price? Right? Right. It's a scam. So um, It's almost like college textbooks. Yes, it's exa- they can because they can, right? So, um, so anyway, uh, the record companies basically said, and you know, they, they're big corporations, they're multinational, they're 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 old, they're sclerotic, they have a hard time moving fast, and they they said, um, no, we're fine, we're still making. Listen, I I, I always ask people uh, my classic question. I always ask them, hey, what was the top selling album of the 1990s? There are different ways you can measure it, but what do you think was, and I, this has to do with like just historical memory and how, how we f- tend to flatten things Michael out. Jackson? No. Like Thriller came out in 1982, so. No, I was thinking. Uh, history or black or white. Or like when he's like the man in the mirror one. Yeah, no. But I mean, it's a good guess, but no. Mike, try guess. I don't know. I, I mean, and, and eventually they'll, they'll really start to narrow it down to really you know good genre? guesses. Can you tell us what genre it was? Um, alternative rock. Well, Nirvana then. Or Pearl Jam. It's not, and it's not. And, but those are really close. Those are all 10 million selling albums. All right, go okay, ahead. Okay, long story short, and a lot of times then they'll come back around and say, was it Spice Girls? Was it the Backstreet Boys? And it was almost the Backstreet Boys. It's just that their album, Millennium, was released at the end of 1999, so like it didn't have all of its big bulk sure. sales. In, anyway, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Really? Depending ah, on how you, that makes sense. Really? Depending on how almost you... Almost every girl yes, I knew had that had album, that, and I had, you know... You would know, I mean, back in that day, if you had a girlfriend and like you called her and that was on, you knew you were in trouble. Yeah. You know, like just it was on in the background. You start thinking in your mind, what did you do? Yeah. Yeah. It sold. I mean, I would have guessed that that would have been a little bit like, you know. Only the, the cool people invasion. knew about it no, kind of thing. That album went six six singles deep. I mean, it had multiple no, it did, number one. Did, yeah. Ironic. You yep. ought to know. One hand in my um, pocket. Yeah. Um, jagged little pill. Yep. So anyway, point is. Point is, you know, they they don't the record the record industry is still selling 
shipping millions of albums a week. And they're like, I don't see a problem. Jobs like, you're gonna. And so he said, you don't want to do anything about it? Okay, guys. iTunes. He said, I'll do it. iTunes. Uh, and, and decided to put it uh, behind a paywall. And that, and that really changed, that changed everything. And then shortly after that, with, with uh, uh, programs like Pandora, uh, and then eventually Spotify, right? You, you get to the point where you don't even have to buy it. And then YouTube in 2005, um, you don't even have to buy it anymore. You don't even have to put down your 99 cents or a buck 10. You can just listen to it. And that's completely democratized the market. It's flooded the market with, with new music options. And it kind allows you to- start killing radio. Yeah, I mean, listen, radio, radio as a result, there's very little new music that gets played on radio because their audience is just getting older, so they continue to play the same stuff that they're, I mean, uh, 102.9 The Hog, which is kind of the, the mainstream rock station, has been playing basically the same tunes for the last 25 years. I mean, you know, you check in and it's like, yep, they were playing that tune in, in 99, you know. Um, so... So there's been this like huge leveling and, and everything changed about how, how people consume music. There are no more gatekeepers, right? Like I can just log on to YouTube and find whatever I want. And this kind of gets into like content area stuff that's really interesting to me because, because like I said, I, it used to be really hard and really culturally divisive. Do you remember back in the 80s? Do you remember the, um, the, the censorship battles and the, uh, uh, the PMRC, the Parents mm -hmm. Music Resource Center? Mm -hmm. Led by, um, led by then-Senator Al Gore's wife, Tipper. Oh, yep. She got into it with NWA. Yes. And, they and, were not fans of Tipper Gore. Yeah, and, and everybody else, right? So, so Two-life crew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and so they had like the Dirty Dozen and all these tunes, you know, that were, that were, you know, that were going to tear at the fabric of America. And by, sure. and by the way, you know, uh, I don't know if you all remember out there in podcast land, but Pepperidge Farm remembers. Yeah. Um, there was a time when um, this was not a... Uh, Democrat Republican issue. In fact, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the Reagan years, this this uh, congressional inquiry was actually led by um, Democrats, um, uh, you know, against rock and rollers and hip hop artists, you know, to say that this music is filthy and it needs a warning. If I'm not that. mistaken, you know, who back then was siding against censorship? Censorship. I know at least with a radio play of stuff. What's that? Bernie. Oh, Bernie? Bernie's been consistent. Interesting. Well, you know, that was a, it was a Motley crew. He was sitting there. No pun intended. In his coat. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Motley crew. With his uh, little this plastic recycled mittens. This censorship will not stand. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I remember that. I mean, big big push. And, I mean, the, kind of the video games thing came out of that too. Of yeah. Video games. So what the, what the record industry did then was they voluntarily censored themselves. That's where you get the parental warning sure. label from. Which is what made the album even cooler. Yeah, but it also it also meant that Walmart wouldn't sell it. And it also meant that, like, in my case growing up, my parents got a veto on anything that I listened to because because it had to not have the explicit label on it. And my dad would, and he's, like, super cool. I did not have overbearing parents hide it at or, all. Or they just kind I of... Just, no, I didn't feel like breaking the fourth commandment so flagrantly. Uh, um, I was Catholic then. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but you know, like they keep the, they kept the lyrics in, in, in binders mm -hmm. at Kmart and my dad would go and he'd just look through really? the lyrics. Yeah. He'd look through the lyrics. If I wanted to buy an album by an artist, he didn't know. Like I wanted a Stone Temple Pilots album and he's, he looked through the lyrics like these lyrics are stupid, but I mean, whatever, man, you know, nothing, nothing explicit in them. And, uh, and so it was hard to get your hands on that stuff, you know, and you think about like how shocking say Madonna's like a prayer music video was. You know, she lost a five million dollar Pepsi sponsorship. I remember Father over it. John telling us that we couldn't, we shouldn't listen to it. It, yeah. it hasn't aged well. I actually tried to show it to my last class, and it was like so cringe um, hmm. that we just turned it off in the middle, and we're like, we could, we couldn't believe she was like so ham-fistedly hitting every cultural button. Sure. But I, anyway, now now with with YouTube, right? Like, there's a certain lack of like control or even acknowledgement about you know the the content of the music that you're listening to. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like a you what? See, so get him to the Greek, yeah, with Russell Brand, and uh, so he's like this rock star who um, <clears throat> becomes way popular, that comes way like just cliche, mm -hmm. and so he comes out with African Child. I don't know if you've seen that part in the yeah. the video for African Child is just ridiculous. I think probably a lot of the edgy stuff back in the day kind of comes across like that now. Yeah, it's and and, and, and it, you know, I guess. But, but again, you know, it's technology that's, that's, that's driving that shift in, in consumption, you know, about... Right. You know. It was just more visual. Our engagement with our music was more visual. I, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I was talking to my kids a while back about, you know, the difference in, like, I listen to albums and you'd get the CD 
and the album art mattered mm-hmm. and you'd go on the CD and see who they thanked or they'd mm-hmm. have something they wrote and you read all the lyrics you know I was you were always disappointed if you got a CD and the the album booklet was real small yes. right um, maybe there was pictures from concerts whatever else um, and I think especially of like late 80s maybe even mid 80s like 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 Van Halen mm-hmm. you know stuff like that like those were always you know part of the thing was to have the album cover which would go on the t-shirt um and yeah i mean my kids now as far as music videos they maybe go on youtube to see them Mm -hmm. but because so many people are looking at so many different things on youtube it's not the same kind of youth cultural experience of you go home and watch mtv or maybe vh1 and you're all engaged i mean that video is going to hit everyone even if you don't like that kind of music you're seeing it and your friends are talking about it and and i think that has led to like more of a musical clickishness, maybe. Yeah, yeah. What's so weird? You can go really deep and really narrow stuff. Yeah. That okay. That thank you. You're this is this is kind of I was rambling and you're kind of focusing it in a direction that I find fascinating with, with the with with my students is that they don't have to listen to anything they don't want to listen to, and so there's a lack of um, kind of shared cultural uh, experience. Or, or, or memory, you know? I mean, if they don't like a song, they don't have to suffer through it um, because that's the radio station that's on. And or, sadly, or I on want... the flip side, the song never gets to grow on you. Yeah, right. Which was a big part of learning to appreciate new... I mean, sometimes you go back to an album now, and my favorite song from the album when it came out, I really didn't like it first, but it grows on you over time. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so, so you can take a really deep dive, and so, but, but not... But not have like shared experiences with everybody else that you're speaking like a common cultural language and it go, does go beyond music i mean you think about if you think about things like tv and movies when we had you know when there were so many fewer choices and i'm not saying that it's good or it's bad but like if you're home from work on a thursday night and you decide i want to watch tv you're going to find something out of the four programs that are on to watch right you might not have been a fan of friends or fraser or seinfeld but you kind of knew what was going on in the show you were going to hear about it at school or at the workplace when others talked about it yeah and music is kind of the, is, is kind of the same way and uh and now they just they, they don't they don't have that and so what i'm what i'm noticing in my in my students is there's a real lack of like of course you could say this in a lot of areas of the culture today but there's a real lack of like any acknowledgement of history like everything is just sort of sui generis to them right it has no history it has no past it has no future it just sort of it just sort of exists as this consumable thing and and something that's very easily consumable and therefore easy to throw away there's no and i think that's happened with with text as well with the rise of google and amazon and stuff like that that um you know many people now read have contact with a book without understanding you know, you mentioned Sue was generous. Kind of, it's a thing unto its own. I think we see that happening in a lot of areas of the culture where you you, you experience the thing, but not contextually, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of the the band that's uh, I, I can't think of the name right now. It's a it's a it's a really it's a really uh, popular hard rock band, but they um, they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Oh, it's oh. Kid- um, uh. I think they were from Michigan, if I remember. Uh, Greta Van Fleet. Yeah. Okay. Greta Van Fleet, right? So I'll have students be like, man, you got to hear this. You got to hear this great, you know, new rock band, Greta Van Fleet, man. They really, they really thump, right? They got this kind of vintage sounds, big guitars, you know. And I'm like, you do know this is, this is like, you know. Guess where they're from? Where? They're from Michigan. What, what's the, Michael, you lived in Michigan. What city in Michigan would you most expect to uh, turn out a uh, Led Zeppelin-type band? It's not that city. It's Frankenmuth, Mike. Really? I was going to say Bay City. The German Christmas city. (laughs) American rock band from Frankenmuth. Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah. When you say that, I've I've heard them before, and every time I think of Greta Van Susteren. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's from she's from Wisconsin. She's from really? the uh, from the Green Bay area. Appleton, that makes sense. I think. Dutch last name. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I I, I distracted you, but go to Van Fleet. No, but right. So the it's a it's a, I think it's a it's a richer experience to be able to like listen to a band, and whether you're doing it casually or kind of because you're a big fan, but you kind of you kind of you have some cultural context and reference for where they're coming from and where they sort of fit in the in the larger stream of uh, of, of pop music history. And and that that's sort of being that's sort of being flattened out uh, these days to a great uh, to a great extent that they just they they don't know what they don't know because that's sort of the weird paradox of unlimited access is that 
But and on the flip side, if you're motivated, you can really learn a lot. It's an amazing thing. Right. So like this Christmas break, I I did a deep dive on um, a bluegrass guitar player who died. Uh, uh, his name's Tony Rice, and as a guitar player, you know, I, he's sort of like the way that Eddie Van Halen, who also died very recently, um, like just reshaped rock guitar, and everybody who played guitar in the 80s and, and 90s like was reacting to that yeah. style. That's who Tony Rice was for bluegrass. And well, I'm just thinking like, I th- and I, I started listening to him, and I was like, oh, you know what? I started listening to this guy back in college, but it was impossible to hear any of his stuff. It was impossible because all the stuff was sold in independent record stores and that sort of stuff, and YouTube was barely a thing, so you couldn't see yeah. videos. And now I'm, I'm in YouTube, and every album you ever made, and I can just I can listen to it. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, in the past, you'd have to either go to the library or invest a lot of money to buy the CDs, you know. And- right, and the, the amount of time it would take to track some of these, especially the more underground artists, to track them down yep. um, uh, to, from those independent labels to, you know, maybe mail away for them. And then, and then just to have to get it sight unseen, like, because yep. maybe, maybe it isn't a good album, but you're yep. stuck with it at 20 bucks, you know. Yeah. On a side note, as far as their name, where it comes from, Greta Van Fleet, uh, the band name was created when one of its members heard a relative mention Gretna Van Fleet, a resident of Frankenmuth. <laughs> and so they got her permission to use the name Greta wow, Van Fleet. Wow, you know, it's a tale as old as time. That's, the, uh, sort of, that's a similar uh, inspiration story for the band Leonard Skinner. They had a real-life person. Um, uh, Leonard Skinner was the, uh, was the, uh, gym teacher at the high school where many of the original members of Leonard Skinner went. Uh. And he was a real sort of 1950s military guy. These guys are hippies. They're growing out their hair. And he'd say to him, Hey, get out the tape measure. Say, Hey, your hair can't be any longer than, you know, can't cover your ears. And they'd say, oh, too bad. He said, well, go home and cut your hair. And they'd come back to school and say, you cut your hair yet? Nope. Kick them out again until they finally didn't come back. Until they finally all just dropped out of high school, joined a band and named it after their gym teacher. I remember I was, uh. Greta seems a little bit nicer than probably. Uh, well, she's, watching, she's Dutch, and you know. And <laughs> I was watching something the uh, the other day, and uh, they were talking about Leonard Skinner and um, oh, what's their song about the South? Uh, oh, Sweet Home Alabama. Sweet Home Alabama. That that was a direct response to another song. Yeah, Neil, Neil Young's Young. um, uh, Southern, Man. Southern Man. Okay, that, and I. But same thing. I ended up going on. I can't. I couldn't remember at the time what the song was, but you know, you go on and then you start. I take notes on my phone to mm-hmm. listen to all these songs as it goes. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating thing. But the younger generation is very very conversant in feud songs, because um, because not only do the do the rappers you know battle it out, but even at a high level, sort of mainstream pop level. I mean, the Katy Perry Taylor Swift, you know, kerfuffle of a few years ago, you know, still still you know brings out raw nerves and emotions. I think Taylor, like most things, she won that one as well. All right, give me give, give me give me your top three musical battles then, like. You've thought about this, obviously. Oh, a little or bit. Or just give me three that I, because I, I don't think about this stuff. Yeah. Besides so, Neil Young and. Uh, can I? Mm-hmm. I, I think, one of the biggest, just because people literally got shot, had to be Biggie Tupac. Biggie Tupac. Yeah, yeah. I mean I that, was say that. That's a that's a huge one. I would say, um, uh, the, uh, well, there's a there's a really interesting one from um, uh, uh, that you might not know the names involved, but it's. Uh, uh, Hank Thompson and uh, Kitty Wells in the 1950s, the country artists. Um, uh, it wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. So anyway, this this is everything, you guys. This is like a perfect cultural moment. So not only are they like country artists at a time when country was very buttoned up, like there was very little controversy uh, in, in in country music, like the um, early Willie Nelson stuff. I mean, he was all dressed up when he started. Yes, that was the what you yes, like to country do. music was late to the controversy party. They were late to the counterculture, you know, party. Um, and this is before that. This is like just after World War II. Uh, Hank Thompson wrote a song, um, uh, basically um, kind of a tale as old as time. He's basically accusing these, like he's saying I, he was out with a, you know, trying to meet a nice girl, right? And, and he met this, this honky-tonk angel, right? And she broke his heart. And, and you know, it's, it's all her fault because she'd rather be off cavorting in the bar than having a real relationship, right? And then Kitty Wells hits back using the exact same song and melody, just changed the words. Said it wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels, it's all you guys who pretend that you're, that you're not married when, you're, when you are. And then you, know, you, you, know, you, you make all these offers to us you know, innocent women, and then you leave us holding the bag and you wonder, you know. And so like, there's a great like, gender like, war being set off in country music there. That's a good one. Um, obviously Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, that's a, that's a fun one as well. What, C-Rap, DJ Zilla. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, one's, that one's legendary. Can I say- 
Certainly, like Eminem, classical I, music. And everybody, Eminem, ICP. And everybody. Oh, yeah. I think Eminem went to jail for that one. That's a, I don't know. That's you, know a, you know who saw ICP in concert I in cannot, high school? I'm sure no, it was you. you did not. Did you really? Yes, I did. And you Spray made it alive? Huh? Everyone? And you I, made it out alive? Yeah, in Roseville. Did you need some need some extra penicillin or anything like that? You know, no. like tetanus shot? I actually went with a, with a, a friend who was very straight and narrow, too. We just kind of wanted to go see it. See it. They were there with others. It wasn't only ICP, but... Uh, we did stay back far enough that we didn't get the Fago sprayed on us. Okay. Um, but it was an interesting experience. I, bet I will it was. say, the most unique concert um, I've ever been to. So, yeah. I, I have to imagine. I have to imagine it would be. And yeah, I. Uh, so I. I don't know. I we sort of, we sort of hit a, a cul-de-sac there, but uh, <laughs> and of course ICP was at the end of it, which is tells you a lot about weight. <laughs> was, was, when you were hunting. on the when you were on last time. <laughs> yeah. Did we talk about ICP? I when think it came up for a second oh, there. Whoop. I had I, I had a friend in in middle school whose older sister was obsessed with ICP, so I have a little bit of a a little bit. Well, of they a were they there. were a Detroit band. Yeah. So, I mean they they were playing all the time in the Detroit area, so you had to go. I'm surprised well, you were up at MLS, but otherwise. Yeah, I would have gone. I would have taken you to see him, Mike. Yeah, we could have. I uh, I fixed uh, the air filter, the air conditioning for Kid Rock's grandparents also. Did you? When I was uh, working at a retirement village. Yeah. Nice. Michigan has a very interesting musical history, wouldn't you not say? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, that's Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent. Bob Seger and uh, Adam, you know, Motown. Like you just have All then, Motown. So you have Motown, and but then you have like these sort of trashy. <laughs> So, <laughs> trashy. Do you know? Do you, you know, know what I mean? But like, don't different say Kid Rock is trashy. Ver, ver, different versions of. For lack of a better term, come up with a better term than trashy. Eclectic. eclectic. I would say Kid Rock is yeah. one of the most eclectic oh, musicians. Oh, I, I appreciate of our him, generation. but he's definitely like you just have a very he's, unique he's, history. He's made his well, right? He's made his, his 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 professional image out to be sort of like a he's going to speak up for the uh, the, the kind of white man. underclass. Well, white Not underclass. Even just white. I mean, I, you go to a Kid Rock concert in Detroit. It's right. A, sure. That there, yeah, but I just I just mean that sort of like redneck sort of yeah, you know, redneck, Ted yes. Nugent, and then and Eminem goes the different direction, a white rapper. You know, I mean, you got a lot. Oh, they going collaborated early on. I'm saying, I, I I that's what I'm saying. Kid it's Rock very... also had one of the best rappers of all time as an associate before he died, which was Joe C, <laughs> the the little person. He, uh, my uh, uh, sister-in-law, I think, went to the same high school as Joe C. Oh yeah. Wow. I, what I'm saying is is it has a very very unique history. Yeah, as far as Detroit, it, yeah. well, just the, Michigan uh, music. Jack, um, White stripes. Yep. And I thought uh, Madonna is from Michigan. She is Royal Oak. Yeah, that's right. You have yep. you have you have quite a bit for a upper Midwest state. Kiss loved playing in Michigan. Yeah, um, Bob be- Seger. Yep. Yep. I mean, but that's because that's because those bands back in this. This is a good segue too. You used to be able to in the seventies, um, if you were a rock band. Um, even if you didn't have a hit on radio, you could make a living and build a following by touring these sort of Rust Belt states because they loved rock and roll music and they loved live music and they were very passionate about it. So like, so like Kiss, for example, it's a great example of this. Um, they had four albums out before they really blew up. And uh, uh, the album that made them blow up was an, uh, Kiss Alive, which was recorded over two nights at Cobo Hall. Um, like nobody got who they were except in the Midwest, except in Cleveland, except in Detroit, Milwaukee. Uh, St. Louis, those those cities really. Uh, the band Rush, also you know was able to keep a career going, um, and at that time, just because of the way that everything was slower, bands had that. And it speaks to Mike's point that we were talking about earlier about you know that there might be a a quality difference you know in in some of the older music you know whether it's better or worse I don't know but but those guys are definitely uh, very much practiced at their at their craft in a way that new musicians just don't have a chance to be or actually don't have a need to be. Think about how primitive. The the, uh, the the live sound systems were back then. Do you know why? Do you know why the Beatles? Now this is not apocryphal. Do you know why the Beatles quit touring? Not why they broke up, but why they quit touring? Did it get too hard to play stuff live that they were doing in the studio? Or? No, because the the live playing stopped, and then the experimentation really started. Huh. Um, two reasons. One, they wanted to be more experimental, and that that touring cycle of write an album, record it in two weeks, then tour for six months, new album. I mean, just like the cycle turned over way faster than it does now, where it's like one to two years. Um, or more. And I've heard Elton John talk about that, like how quickly he had to produce stuff back then. Yeah, absolutely. 
go on YouTube and watch footage of the Beatles playing at Shea Stadium or any of their sort of like, you know, in, you know first year or two concerts in, in the United States. And you'll notice something if you're thinking about what, what a concert looks like today. You'll notice that there is no PA and there's no monitors. Monitors are those speakers hmm. that the musicians use to hear themselves. Um, when they played Shea Stadium, the sound came through the same sort of metal horns that the Mets announcer would use to announce huh. who's up to bat. Okay, they couldn't hear themselves at all, like to perform. And then if you listen to the sound from those concerts, what you will also find is that they still sing and play in tune and in time. Huh. Imagine that, like, like literally not being able to hear a note you are singing or playing and being able to, to still reproduce it well. Um, that's a lot of practice. Um, it's also very frustrating. Yeah. It's not gratifying in any way. And that's why they, they that's a big reason why they stopped because the, the, the crowds were there. The demand for the live shows was there, but, but the, tech, that big event, but the technology was, was, huh. was not there to be able to support that. Can I throw out one more Detroiter? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at a list by the way. Of, okay. Who's yours? Who are you going to throw out? No, I'm just looking at like, I just Googled rock and roll bands by state. Oh, like in well, I just Googled stuff Detroit like musicians and the big one we didn't say is Stevie Wonder. Oh, Okay. I mean, I knew he was on Motown. I didn't know he was actually from, yeah. from um, Michigan. All right. I know uh, that Jeremy, or Jerema, as Mike called you, um, is going to have to... I was putting uh, Jeremy and Zima together. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you're going to have to go soon, yeah. and I'm going to have to go to get my snowblowers getting dropped off, which has been repaired, so I'm actually looking forward to snow now. But um, any final thoughts you'd like to wrap up with? We threw a lot at you today. I know. I feel like I was extra distracting, and That's I okay. apologize. One thing I would notice, and I, I brought this up to a lot of my students, uh, especially the guys that if they're not in hip-hop, they're, they're listening to classic rock. They're not necessarily finding out what's new in rock and roll, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in rock and roll. I think it's because for many years, for decades, pop music was essentially rock music-based. Whether it was, you know what I mean? It was like guitar and drums mm -hmm. based. You know, what, whatever the sort of subgenre was, there were certain assumptions that it was kind of, again, based in that rock and roll framework. That's shifted since the, since the late 90s, I would say. And now all, all pop music is hip-hop based, including country music, which is a very weird thing. Yeah. But artists like Sam Hunt or Florida Georgia Line um, or, and lots, lots of other ones. Where they're coming from is a production model, both in songwriting and in sound production, that's very much uh, hip-hop oriented. So it's about sort of like looping beats and looping progressions um, and hooks, as opposed to a more conventional verse-chorus structure and, and, and traditional instruments. And I'm not saying that that's better or worse necessarily. I'm not making a value judgment in that way. But it is an interesting shift, and I think that it does account for a lot of the sort of um, discomfort uh, among some of my students as to, you know, why they, they just feel like the new music doesn't resonate with them. And it might be fundamentally because they're not hip hop people and they don't necessarily know it, but hip hop has, uh, is just the default operating mode. And part of that is to wrap it up is technology. It used to be hard to make albums. Um, you used to have to hire everyone who played a different instrument, that sort of thing with the rise of things like GarageBand and pro tools, um, the, and the shrinking of, of digital technologies to bedroom size and consumer grade. Um, you now create music in a visual medium on your computer screen. And so just like you cut and paste in Word, you cut and paste music. And so the music you get is sort of, it's in a weird way. Uh, the technology actually drives the way the music sounds because you don't have to play the song all the way through. You just get the part that you want and then you can move it around and you can add things infinitely and you can make them perfect, infinitely perfect. And that's sort of a weird thing too because I think a lot of people, uh, they actually want to hear the, the warts yep. in the music you know what I mean? Where yep. that note's slightly out of tune. They don't. They can't put their finger feels on it. Feels more authentic. But, it feels but, more but live. something that's but yeah. something that's perfectly in tune all the time is almost like, well, there's another, there's another perfect uh, version of this or that song or another YouTube guitar player. And then it sounds really disappointing live when you hear it. They're, right, because those those artists were not were not uh, coming up in a in a in a medium that forced them to be as good as they could, but also to just accept that it can't be perfect. You know. Yeah, I was reading something uh, something about. Uh, how like it's it's hard to they're not hip-hop people so they they aren't readily appreciative of the new version of the new music or whatever i was just doing some stuff on neuroscience and how really it music sometimes acts in the brain like a language right you have to you have to like going from one version to another is akin not exactly but akin from going english to spanish you have to it just sounds different. You have to literally kind of learn a new genre. I yeah. mean, you feel that's part of the 
Yeah, I do because they have like again they they have different grammar and syntax. You know, when you're used to the sort of the standard um, rocks. Okay, so think about the divide with with the beginning of rock and roll. Before that, most popular music was uh, 32 measures long, A A B A format. Okay, so like if you think of a hymn, it's actually the exact same. Think of a four line hymn where the first two lines are basically the same and the last line is the same, and the only one that's different is in the middle. That's how almost all pop songs were written. So your ear becomes acculturated to that. It then becomes a shock to hear rock and roll, which is not based on that 32-bar form, but on maybe a 12-bar blues kind of format. Your ear's not used to it, and so it doesn't love it. But then when that verse, chorus, or 12-bar blues becomes the the new operating standard, and that's rock and roll, when that gets replaced by sort of like endless looping of of hooks and, and super repetitive uh, progressions... Yeah, that's a new grammar and syntax. Uh, I, I had a student who was actually the one who I was kind of teasing for looking a lot like Eminem, who was explaining to me like the logic of um, of certain rap song constructions. And I just hadn't occurred to me, you know what I mean? And, and I was able to get a better appreciation for it uh, through him explaining to me exactly why they're doing what they're doing, which is great. But, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it was foreign to me, just like a language would be. You know, you know what I mean? It's hard to appreciate it if you just fundamentally do not understand it. It's just, it's too different. And the goal of pop music is always to be uh, pretty much the same because your ear's been conditioned. And then so like, like when you hear a song and you kind of like guess what's going to happen before it happens, your brain goes, oh, that's good. Like, and you feel good about it, but you want it to be just different enough that it keeps your interest. But when it's so different, well, then your, your, yeah, your brain just won't, won't deal with it. So... I don't know. I, I, I don't know where that where that leaves us, except that um, you know, with the the, the hyper sort of like um, this this like this flattened out landscape that we live in now. You know, it's it's not a it's not a given that someone is you know that a young person is going to have to grapple with uh, a style that they don't want to. You know, now it's good that's not being forced on them from above. You know, they're not being sort of like tricked into liking what corporations want them to like in order to make money off of them. But at the same time, it does make, and we see this in all areas of society, it does make sort of like cultural discussion very difficult because you don't have the same set of basic assumptions. Yeah, and I think just two thoughts before I'll I'll let you guys or or Michael or whoever wrap it up. First, I think this fits really well with our um, uh, America Losing Its Mind series. Mm. Not because this is necessarily America Losing Its Mind, but I think it hits on a lot of similar key themes that we hit on in there. And I think the loss of common cultural experiences is one of those. I think kind of the Spotify music model in some ways too is it's not soundbite engagement, but it's very limited. Um, as you mentioned, it's in its own kind type engagement, yeah. which is not necessarily tied together. And so I think a lot that fits with that. I also, Mike, would like to propose with your permission a word of the day. Because okay. Dr. Zimmer said a word that I did not know and I feel like I should have known it and I looked it up. And I'm going to start using it. Anybody want to guess what word it was? No. Sclerotic. Ooh, that's a good word. We used that earlier. And so I looked it up, and sclerotic means having rigid, or becoming rigid and unresponsive, losing the ability to adapt. And so I would like to make that our word of the day, S-C-L-E-R-O-T-I-C, sclerotic. Thank you. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't know that because I, I, that I could see you using that quite a bit. Like, oh, this, I'm going to now. Right, because uh, institutions can be this way. Um, that's the way they get know, over time, right? The larger, right. the larger and older an institution gets, right. the more sort of like bureaucratic barnacles that yeah, accrues. Yeah, yep. they, they get, you right. might say, sclerotic. sclerotic. Yeah, it is a very good word. Thank yeah. you. Glad I could contribute something of value. Sweet to generous. The that was a good phrase too that yeah. you don't always hear. That's a good one. But I knew well. that one. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I was iffy on sui generis. I had to stop and think. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Of its own kind, right? You are, you are sui generis. You're very. You're one gen- of a kind to me. You're very generous. Thank you. With your time. Is there anything your- as we wrap up that you would like to blame <laughs> me for, Michael? I've never blamed you for anything. So you literally did. I just it. said I'm sorry that because okay. Wade was going to well, email you. I will let you guys you wrap it up. I will so. say. I think there's a lot of jumping points and other stuff if we want to talk. About I would. I would love too. to come back and and, and see I, if we I can think, make something out of this sort of. Yeah. I threw out there. I think especially unpacking um, the lack of kind of co- common cultural experiences, the, the difference between encountering a song or an album, um, and I think the the language, the, the kind of the moving between the different genres, I think is a. I think it it fits a lot with what we've looked at. Of you, you know, um, there's just a lot of areas of life now that have become rabbit holes in yeah. a way that they weren't before. So, agreed. Excellent, but. 
I think we can be appreciative that we have access to all these different music and we can talk about it and think about it and all that kind of stuff. It reminds me of the freedom that we have and that we were made for freedom. Oh, before and we, and most can I do a fact of the day too? Yep, sure. Word of the day. We did word of the day. What would be your fact of the day? There's one thing I learned that I will remember now and mention to people. Greta Van Fleet is from... Close. Frank that was number two. <laughs> that the number one selling album... Oh yeah, now, the sales within the '90s. So there right. are like like so you got to think the Nirvana album over time sold right. more. But sales within the '90s yep. was a. Uh, That's that is that Alanis I would never I would have ne- never guessed that. Yep. It made total sense once you said it, but yeah, that was my fact of the day, it. which I'm sharing with you in Christian freedom. I'll keep your segment yeah, going. Yeah, and so uh, reminds me of the freedom that we have in Christ, and because we are free, um, everything's done for us, and so there's nothing left to do but what? Let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down